Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I've got to go, Rock. It's all right. I'm not afraid. Sometime, Rock, when the team is up against it, when things are wrong and the brakes are beating the boys, ask them to go in there with all they've got and win just one for the Gipper. I don't know where I'll be then, but I'll know about it and I'll be happy. That, Dominic Sandbrook, was the death of George Gipp, who originally was a very successful basketball player, then became um, a football player after his team coach saw him kick football an absolute mile. Um, He was a great football star. And then very sadly, um, he got a throat infection and died of it at the age of 25. But the twist in this story, and people may be wondering why we're talking about this rather obscure football player, the twist as I'm sure all our American listeners will certainly know, is that actually that wasn't George Gipp. That was Ronald Reagan playing George Gipp. Right. And that was original footage, was it, Tom? That was yes. the uh, Yes, it was. That was from the film <laughs> Knut Rockney, All-American, 1940. That absolutely wasn't you. No, it wasn't me. Well, it, you, you could probably tell it was me because obviously it was Reagan. I mean, it's a brilliant impression, but it was Reagan as he sounded in the 1980s. The problem is whenever I think of Reagan, I think of Reagan as president yeah. because he was the first American president that I became familiar with. Right. And, and we punctuate, you know, not just Americans, all of us punctuate our lives with um, the American presidents who are in the background on the news in the newspapers. And Reagan was the first for me. The Gipper. Yeah. The Gipper. Yeah. People called him the Gipper. I mean, people called him throughout his, his political career, people called him the Gipper. Because, because before he became president, long, long before he became president, he was a, a, a movie star. Yes. And before he became a movie star, he played a lot of sports. Yeah, he did. Well, he he, he didn't just... Um, and he was a kind of TV commentator. Well, he was Alan right, he was a radio commentator. He was a radio commentator. Yeah. Um, yes, and a, an extremely successful one. Yes, hello, everybody. Welcome to The Rest is History. Uh, we are embarking on a, an epic journey through the life of, of Ronald Reagan. So our last epic journey, Tom, was through the career of Christopher Columbus. So now another great American. <laughs> another great American, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, so Reagan has a really extraordinary life, doesn't he? I mean, when you, it, it allows us to talk about so many different things. So growing up in the Midwest, um, the world of the early days of radio, um, Hollywood, uh, the red scares of the late 1940s, and then obviously going into politics in California, the big governor of California. And then the set, the sort of tumult of the seventies, the rise of kind of populist conservatism. And then those those sort of two terms and Reagan, I suppose has, I mean, even I know you're not a specialist in American history, Tom, but um, Reagan feels like a really consequential world figure, doesn't he? In a way that most American presidents arguably don't. Well, he's got an airport named after him, hasn't he? Yeah. Reagan national in Washington. Uh, uh, and that's absolutely a measure I get. Well, no, I suppose it isn't because Ford's got one and all kinds of people have, but it, but it's a big one. I mean, uh, it's a big one. Yeah. It's yeah. not, um, it's not the Jimmy Carter peanut facility. Or, uh, <laughs> is it? I mean, uh, no, and it's it, not just that. Um, I mean, that sounds a bit uh, like we're sort of being completely frivolous about it. But Reagan is also a, a, an ideological lodestar. So he's one of those figures that Republicans always invoke. I mean, rather like how British conservatives always lay claim to the mantle of Winston Churchill or Margaret Thatcher. Reagan fulfills that role in a way that, you know, among modern presidents, I suppose only Franklin Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy, they do for the Democrats. Reagan stands alone, really, for the Republicans. Maybe Abraham Lincoln, I suppose. My sense growing up in um, a Europe that was haunted by the shadow of nuclear war, yeah. my sense of Reagan growing up was a very negative one, that he was a warmonger, that he was a, a dangerous cowboy. You remember Spitting Image, which was um, yeah. kind of satirical British TV show involving latex puppets. And there was a kind of running gag about Reagan that he would... Um, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd be looking for the button to press. Oh dear, I've pressed the wrong one. There goes Moscow. Yeah. Um, and that was a kind of running gag that he just had to press the wrong button and third world war would break out. 
And then um, suddenly he was kind of meeting up with Gorbachev in Geneva and Reykjavik and kind of even going to Moscow. And yeah. um, the Cold War seemed to be over. So there was that kind of tension, I think, in the memory that he was a cowboy who was out to you know, shoot the bad guys and, and precipitate the Third World War. He was a man of peace who uh, wanted to get rid of all nuclear weapons. So there's that ambivalence, I think, which is probably the overriding sense of ambivalence for people outside America. My sense of Reagan as a president within America is that he was a kind of a pretty terrible president in terms of his policy, but that in his role as a kind of constitutional monarch, yeah. which is also a very important part of the president's role, he was superb. And even people who were very ideologically opposed to him, who, who, who hated a lot of what his policies embodied, they liked him. He was a genial man. He, yes. was, uh, he was at moments of extreme stress in American life, think particularly of the loss of the space shuttle when it blew up. The Challenger. Yeah. The Challenger. Um, you know, he, he was superb at channeling American grief and pride and all the complexities of it. Um, but maybe I'm being a, a kind of, that's my a kind of sneery European perspective. That does absolutely capture how a lot of Europeans think about Reagan. I think the difference, interesting for me as somebody who writes a lot about Britain in the same period, the interesting contrast obviously is with Margaret Thatcher, supposedly his great partner and soulmate, because they're very different, I would say, in temperament, in style, in tone. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher's so abrasive and so confrontational. Nobody loved Mrs. Thatcher. I mean, a few did, perhaps. If, but- you, if you were a very hardcore Tory, you would love Mrs. Thatcher. But it, but she was uncompromising in her in her zeal for conflict and confrontation. I mean, she loved it. One of the things that emerges when you sort of study Reagan, the people around him say, the one thing about Ronald Reagan is he hated confrontation. And did all that <laughs> Unless he could. it was with the Soviets. <laughs> yeah, and did all that he could. To, well, even with the Soviets, you see, the interesting yeah. thing is that Reagan is writing in his diary how he'd love to get in a room together with the general secretary yeah. and convince him, you know, that we mean them no harm and, and all this kind of thing. I mean, there is this sort of, that emollience is not just skin, it's not just a performance. I mean, well, this is a thing we'll discuss that for, with Reagan, it is, of course, always a performance. He is the, the, polit- the politician as performer par excellence. But the key to Reagan, it seems to me, is that he absolutely believes in his own performance. And to some degree, I mean, one of the interesting things about him when he's a film star um, is people always say he's at his best when he's playing himself. I mean, this, the, the sort of mirrors within mirrors. You know, he has this fantasy image of what a president should be or what an American should be. And he's absolutely determined to play it. But he's, he's never really aware that it's a performance, is he? He never lets you in on the... It's not like Boris Johnson, who's always winking and joking and... Or like Trump. Drawing, yeah, drawing attention to the artifice. Reagan does an, an absolute sincerity to his portrayal of, of himself as the president. Well, I think also, and again, this is perhaps a kind of foreign perspective on it, but he absolutely embodies so much that defined America in the, in the 20th century to a startling degree. So um, in his memoirs, he talks about growing up with white picket fences. Yeah. Sense, even though, as we'll find out, his upbringing was much more um, kind of darker than that, really. Um, he plays sports at high school. Yeah. He does the high school romance. Um, he goes to college. He is a lifeguard. Um, he becomes a Hollywood actor. It's astonishing the degree to which he has within himself all these kind of ideals, these visions, these fantasies, these dreams that Americans have always had about themselves and the way that that, that has served to define America in the eyes of the world. And he draws on all of that. As, yeah. as a politician, yeah, superbly. But the question then is, um, you know, which we've already <laughs> fencing around. To what extent is it performative, and to what extent is he, is he what he seems to be? Well, it's a fascinating question, isn't it? With politicians, you could argue that it's everything is always performative, but that's the point. That's not inauthentic. I mean, it's it's. So I've just got a list of of comments here. So, so this is a screenwriter called Irving Wallace in 1942 describing Reagan as a man who parrots things, shallow and affable. Uh, Richard Nixon to Henry Kissinger in 1971, pretty shallow. And then that's the charge throughout his presidency. Yeah. Um, is that basically he's a, he's a kind of a mannequin or he's an actor speaking lines and that people have to give him the scripts. And the question of, as to whether there is any, actually any depth beneath that seeming shallowness is 
kind of interesting. That's a fascinating one. And I'll, I'll just as a spoiler, I don't think he is shallow. I think, I mean, the interesting thing about Reagan, about the thing about the scripts, he writes those scripts. He absolutely believes, and as we'll come to in this episode, uh, in Hollywood, he was notorious for being, you know, you wouldn't want to sit next to him at lunch because he would just bore you about world affairs and politics. But, which he'd probably picked up from Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest. Well, that's true. He picks up from Reader's Digest. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Anyway, so let's talk a little bit about uh, about Reagan's background, because this actually is a really interesting story, isn't it, Tom? That's so fascinating. He, so he was born in 1911, um, Tampico, Illinois, uh, which one of his biographers, I think it's Bob Spitz, describes Tampico as says it's basically like the set of a low-budget Western. So he's in the Midwest. Right. And the whole way through his life, both the settings and the people around him are like people from films. Yeah, they are. Even his parents are actually to some degree, aren't they? They are rather stereotypical. Uh, Jack, Jack Reagan and well, Nellie Wilson. Well, or even before that. I mean, so they come from Ireland. Yeah. Via London, via Peckham, interestingly. Um, and they, they go, they, you know, they become prospectors. So it's Little House on the Prairie. All yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, his great uncles go gold prospecting, um, and two of them end up being eaten because they get stuck in a snowstorm. Um, Who eats them? The other prospectors. <laughs> That's bad form, isn't it? I wouldn't. I'd yeah, hope but, for better from my prospecting comrades. But the idea of of Reagan as a cowboy. I mean, his 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 great uncles died in the the Wild West at its wildest. Yeah. So that is all part of the background. The funny thing is, even though he he sort of dressed up as a cowboy on his ranch, he was always very cross when people called him a cowboy. And he said, I didn't do many Westerns. He did about no, he seven didn't. Westerns or no. something. But that's a sign of that American iconography, how quickly people associated the two. And he himself, there are loads of photos of him in a denim shirt kind of on of his course. ranch with a, with a well, horse. So he, he's, I mean, he grows up in the Midwest. Yeah. Don't you think that a huge part of his appeal is that he embodies an ideal of America that is associated with the Midwest? Yeah, it's kind of it's it's virtues, it's hardiness, it's provincialism. Absolutely, absolutely, couldn't agree more. I think um, uh, he has a fantasy of America himself. Um, he has a, at the core of Reagan is an idea of America. I think that he completely utterly believes in, and it's a very Midwestern idea. It's not the world of the coasts. It's not urban or metropolitan. Um, it's not especially diverse or sort of multicultural. Um, well, not at all, is it? I mean, there, there I guess uh, we'll talk about Reagan and race a little bit later, but there are not many African-Americans in Reagan's early years. It's a world of small towns. If you've ever been, for our British listeners, if you've ever been you know, to some of these places, to Illinois, to Iowa, to Minnesota, I mean, I live for a year in Minnesota, you are a long way. You're an awful long way from anywhere. And there are these small towns with enormous, an enormous sense of civic pride. The kind of thing, actually, that in Britain we don't have at all and we automatically scoff at, uh, where, where people make their own, they, they don't just make their own entertainment, but they make their own civic culture. Yeah. So, you know, Reagan's mother, for example, Nellie, we'll talk a bit more about her in a second, but she is absolutely one of these people who throws herself into the local community in a completely unironic way. You know, I'm going to join the church, I'm going to join the amateur dramatic society. I'm going to do loads of charitable things. And that sort of small town world where everybody knows everybody else, you know, they, that, that fantasy, if you like, Reagan as a, as a little boy completely imbibes that. And it would never occur to him to question it or to mock it or to do all these no, things, which as Europeans, no. we automatically do. No. And in his memories of it, there's a, it, it's the embodiment of um, all these tales of, uh, I suppose, kind of, Mark Twain, going back to all that, the 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 idea of um, the, so he writes about there were woods and mysteries, life and death among small creatures, hunting and fishing. That kind of idea that this is a, a paradise for a child, um, yeah. and you know that 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 idea that a paradise has been lost is often there in conservatives. I mean, it's kind of a, a wellspring for conservatives and in adult life. But the thing that's fascinating about Reagan is that it's not just a you know white picket fences, because there is also quite a lot of darkness. Yeah. So his father, Jack, he's from Fulton, Illinois. Um, as you said, um, sort of Irish background. Uh, he's a shoe salesman, which sounds kind of banal, but actually at the time, in the sort of 1910s, 1920s, the department store was king 
And to be a salesman in the department store was, was a kind of, I mean, I don't want to oversell it. It's not a massive deal, but it's not nothing. Bob Spitz and, in his um, biography of Reagan has the great phrase, he developed a flair for fitting the female foot. <laughs> what a thing to have as your other self. Um, he's tall, he's charming, he's gregarious. Um, he's, very, he's very political, actually. So the idea that Reagan, I mean, this obviously hangs over Reagan all his career, the idea that he's merely a puppet or a front man. He comes from quite a political family. And the politics is, is Democrat. Yeah, politics is Democrat, very interested in social causes, social issues, you know, minimum wage, uh, welfare, all that sort of stuff. Jack is, I mean, as an Irishman, he's almost automatically going to be a Democrat anyway, because politics in the late 19th, early 20th century is very sort of sectarian. But um, yeah, he's, he talks about this at the dinner table. The cloud, of course, is, is drink. So, so Jack is, yeah. there's some question about whether he's a, an alcoholic or a binge drinker. I mean, as, as if you can sort of separate the two, he's definitely, a, I mean, he's definitely a binge drinker and he drinks a lot. And this, I mean, this is clearly an issue, um, for the family and for, and for young, well, Dutch as he's called, he's not called Ronald, is he? Nobody calls him Ronald at this point. Everyone calls him Dutch. Dutch after his, um, hairstyle, a Dutch Bob. Dutch Bob, yeah, but the sal—I mean—the salient fact um, about uh, Jack Reagan and and his drinking is that it affects his ability to work, and so they keep having to move town, and their lodgings become kind of poorer and poorer and poorer. Yeah. So there's a sense of a downward spiral, even as as Dutch is you know loving loving life. Um, he's clearly a person with a great appetite for life. Yeah. But. Uh, Jack never loses his principles and Reagan remembers, you know, he, he refuses to let um, uh, his, so Ronald Reagan has a, an elder brother uh, who goes by the nickname of Moon. What's he called? Neil, I think. Neil. Yeah. Neil. I'd, I'd choose Moon over Neil, frankly. I mean, <laughs> Maybe. And no offense to any Neil listeners, um, and, but Moon listeners will be delighted by that remark. Um, so Moon and Dutch are not allowed to watch um, Birth of a Nation. The, the very racist film when it mm. comes out. And Reagan remembers there was no more grievous sin at our household than a racial slur or other evidence of religious or racial intolerance. Tom, your role Reagan is very good. You were you were reluctant to do it before we started recording, and I really had to twist your arm oh, and sort of shout at you, you to get you to do it. But, but I'm, I'm glad I'm glad Ronald Reagan is joining us for this podcast. So that so that I found really interesting reading up about Reagan's childhood was this, the, the the omnipresent sense that Jack Reagan embodies a very kind of principled devotion to FDR, yes, New Deal, all that yeah. kind of stuff, that he's very opposed to um, anything that smacks of racial prejudice, religious prejudice. And on that topic, of course, it's interesting that he has actually married, he's a Catholic, he's married a Protestant. Yeah, Nellie Wilson. And that's very unusual, isn't it? It is unusual. And Nellie is not, I mean, she's not just somebody from a Protestant background. So Jack is kind of, you know, the, the big man, kind of tall and gregarious and stuff. And Nellie is more innocent i suppose and and deeply deeply religious i mean she so she joins a group called the disciples of a church called the disciples of christ in 1910 by the standards of sort of evangelicalish churches they are quite they're, they're very kind of moderate aren't they i mean they're just well but but, but passionately committed yeah that's their good works they sound very attractive as 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 sort of brands go Christian yeah. brands go. They're a very appealing one, aren't they? They're devoted to the social gospel. They're, the aim is that you do a charitable deed every day, which she does. Yeah. Um, she and she really throws herself into a part of the because Jack is off boozing and and fitting shoes to the female fitting the female foot. foot. <laughs> <laughs> so she is, and she goes on the road for the disciples of Christ, and she does recitals, and she does does sort of talks, and she reads Christian poetry, and and all of that, undoubtedly, I had not appreciated until really digging into Reagan's background. I always thought his his talk of God was skin deep, and it's patently obvious that it isn't. And it's very young. he feels it very young, yeah, because it's a church where you have full immersive baptism, um, but but you have to choose to be baptized. And both both Dutch and Moon, yeah, want to, want to have it done very young. They do, and she agrees, and he always holds to it. Well, he, he reads a book, um, which is a sort of Disciples of Christ fictional bestseller called That Printer of Udells by Harold Bell White Wright. And there's a, the hero of that is called Dick Faulkner. And at one point he comes across his own father, um, who's an alcoholic, passed out, drunk. 
And this obviously made a big impression on Reagan because he has a story. It's always hard to tell with Reagan, of course, where his own recollections begin and, you know, fiction ends. But he has a story about doing that with his own father. Um, and clearly that, that, this book, that printer had a massive effect on him because when he was 11, he went to his mother and said, please have me baptized in the disciples of Christ. And again, as Europeans, I think in the 1980s, we sort of thought, oh, ha ha, this is all just completely fake and inauthentic and sort of pandering to his constituency. Not a bit of it. He, he genuinely, all his life, he takes this stuff enormously seriously, that faith element. So the combination of kind of Jack, charming, real hit with the ladies, you know, a man's man, I suppose you would say, a man who will have a glass of whiskey with you and tell you a kind of funny story. And then Nellie, really interested in, in sort of, you know, she's a performer, but she loves taking the stage and talking to people about good and evil, right and wrong, you know, the path of Christ. I mean, you can see them in, in Ronald, can't you? And that, again, is the stereotype of Reagan in 80s Europe, is that he's a person who sees the world in manarchy in terms, who sees it in terms of good and evil. And this is something that I think isn't entirely wrong. I think, I think Reagan is very, very prone to seeing the world in terms of, of, of good and evil. Yeah. And one of the, obviously the, um, his, his, his mother's church is a huge example, influence on that. But another one is his early love of movies. And this is a period where you can tell who the goody is because he's wearing a white hat. Yeah. And you can tell who the baddies are because they're wearing black hats. And am I unfair in saying that that essentially establishes his understanding of how the world is? I, I don't think you are unfair. I think he definitely has a strong sense that the world is a, you know, his, his antipathy to communism later in his life, you know, that is shot through with a very clear sense of there is good and evil. When he talks about the evil empire, the Soviet Union is the focus for evil in the modern world, as he does in 1983. That's not just a speechwriter talking. That's reflecting his deep sense, which actually he definitely shares with Margaret Thatcher, who also comes from, a, by British standards, an unusually um, sort of God-fearing, uh, low-church kind of Methodist background. Uh, they bond over that because, you know, they when they're meeting with other kind of world-weary, you know, Helmut Schmidt, Helmut Kohl, these kinds of people, they probably don't go, Mitterrand, they probably don't go in for this kind of stuff. Yeah. Their moralism marks them out. Uh, and I think a lot of people actually for both, it's true, both Reagan and Thatcher, but even more so for Reagan, I think his moralism and his Manichaeanism in the 1970s, a very confused sort of post-Vietnam period, I think a lot of people found that actually Quite I mean, reassuring. People, yeah, really invigorating yeah. to have somebody who stands up and says there's good and evil. But I think also what they what what people responded to later in, in Reagan's later career is the sense that he had really walked the American walk. Yeah. That he has the high school sweetheart, who's a girl called Margaret Cleaver. Muggs. Muggs. What a great Muggs. name. He plays sport. The basketball team he plays for is brilliantly called the Whiffle Puffs. Yeah. Are they basketball or baseball? Basketball basketball so he's playing basketball he plays baseball but football is his passion football yeah. is the sport he really um american Which he will then go on to, to play the gipper yeah of course and he makes he makes his money by being a serving as a lifeguard a lifeguard yeah and that sense of kind of strapping health high school all that you know everything that 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 not just americans think about when they think of of small town america reagan is living that life unironically in a kind of you know he loves it yeah so people say about him when he's a teenager, people admire him, people like him. Nobody really knows him. Even then, I mean, all through his career, people say, you don't know Ronald Reagan. He doesn't share his feelings. He's, he doesn't have, for example, close male friends. He has, everybody likes him, but it's, he doesn't have a kind of a soulmate. I mean, obviously there's mugs. Um, he loves acting, even as a teenager. He's into, into the church. I mean, his mother, his, it's interesting, his parents are kind of, it's later said of him that he makes guest appearances with his own family and his own children because he's always off doing something else. And that's true of his parents too, isn't it? Because by the time he's a teenager, his mother is at church, his father is in the pub or something. Yeah. And yet, a bit like with when we did our podcast about the young Churchill, it's an interesting lesson in the power of temperament because Reagan could so easily have been bitter, you know, that his parents were, that he, they were never there that his father was drinking, that their circumstances were so straightened. But he has this incredible optimism. A sunniness. 
Suddenly, so his yeah. high school yearbook, you write your own motto in your high school yearbook. And his motto is, life is one sweet song, so start the music. And for oh. a t- uh, it is inconceivable that a British teenager <laughs> would yeah. ever Listening write to the those Smiths. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> would ever write those words. I mean, it's just at no stage, I think, in Britain's history would anybody have, have, have said that, that sentence without laughing. But Reagan, you know, it's one of the attractive things about him. It's one of the reasons that actually is a pleasure to read about. Yeah. Because it's so unusual to have somebody so sunny and optimistic. Yeah. And he, he goes to, uh, he ends up going to a, a college, doesn't he? Eureka. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is a great name for a college. Eureka College. Um, which, it, again, has a kind of sunniness shot through it. Um, it's very, very, by the, I mean, it's very progressive. Yes. Founded by abolitionists, disciples of Christ. Yeah. And uh, when Reagan goes, there's um, the orientation day. The, the guest of honor is um, a Civil War veteran who'd known Lincoln. Okay. Yeah. That sense of um, that he's obviously got from his dad and that he gets from from Muggs, who's gone there. And Reagan has to get a scholarship. I mean, he, he can't afford to go. Mm. Um, basically, they, they kind of chuck out scholarships to everyone because they're that kind of institution. Yeah, and he's good at sports. Well, he's quite good at sports. He works really hard and throws himself into it. He's not very good at his academic work, is he? He sort of coasts, yeah, gets C's and D's or something. But he's acting. He's doing his acting. With even when he's on the football team, he will impersonate sportscasters, right? And he also apparently has a very good impersonation of um, FDR. Well, he loves FDR, of course. So FDR is about to. FDR is not quite yet president, but FDR is the kind of coming man who's governor of New York. And the Reagan family adore FDR. And Reagan all his life thought FDR was the absolute model um, of a president. I'll tell you one thing, that an affectation he developed at uh, Eureka College that I'm sorry he abandoned is smoking a pipe. <laughs> well, and also the other, the other thing that he, of course, um, abandons is wearing glasses because he's incredibly short-sighted. Yeah. Um, and I had, I'd never realized that. You never see him with glasses. Do no, you? never. He would never appear in public as president. I mean, just like he he wouldn't appear in public as president without a shirt and tie and a sort of full suit, suit yeah. and boots. Yeah. Because he doesn't want to look like Jimmy Carter. But that's why he could never be a, a truly elite sportsman. Is, right. You know, a bit like me. That but Tom, you wear glasses. We have the natural ability. Yeah, because I, I, I just think that with my looks, I can get away with them. So actually, the parallels are quite uncanny. Yeah, because in many ways. You're, you're also, as people will have gauged from that George Gipp business, you're also a brilliant, a quite brilliant actor, aren't you? Yes, yes, um, yes. Well, it's not for me to say, but very possibly. Well, I read the feedback on your impersonations on Twitter from our listeners. Yeah. For example, yeah. what did you do recently? You did The Sopranos. Yeah. And extraordinary feedback, I think it's fair to say. So I could have gone to Hollywood, as Reagan ends up doing, doesn't he? Um, because he, he doesn't play sport, so he decides to commentate on it. Well, we should take a break, Tom, and then before we get into his sports casting career because that is a remarkable story okay so we'll see you after the break for some sports casting welcome back to the rest is history we're talking about ronald reagan and tom it's 1932 the united states is in the depths of the great depression one in four people are out of work but not ronald wilson reagan because he he is determined to Muggs, his girlfriend, has a dream they'll both be teachers, but he's not really interested in being a teacher. He likes, he's already interested in the kind of showbiz world, but the world of sport. So he goes off to um, sports. Sports. Yes, I'm so sorry. Um, You take the S from maths and put it onto sport, and that's how you speak American. He goes off to Chicago, doesn't get in, tries to get his foot in the door, but doesn't manage it. But he ends up through various contacts in Davenport, Iowa, for the brilliantly named radio station World of Chiropractic. (laughs) aha woc so the the guy who owns it is bj palmer his father invented chiropractice apparently and um they basically give reagan a trial sort of off the cuff he improvises commentary on a game that eureka eureka had played against western state and they say brilliant you know they give him the job and then he goes off to des moines iowa for their sister station who and he rises to be their chief sportscaster, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's, he's actually brilliant at it. And the amazing thing is he never does any of the games. Well, he can't see any of the games. He can't see it. Well, there's a famous anecdote that he tells later about, you know, this is coming, th- the, the details are coming through and then it cuts out. Yeah, for six minutes. And so he just, 
he just, for six minutes he just completely makes it up. Yeah, and then he and then when they come back on, so he's been delaying for six minutes and say, inventing fouls and stuff and describing the background, and then it comes back on to discover that the batter um, was out <laughs> within seconds of the of the wire going down. So this is often taken by Reagan's more hostile biographers as sort of evidence of his addiction to fantasy and his a sort of dishonesty and artifice. But almost all commentary like this was yeah was done this way. So basically, you would get the wire, the telegraph wire, Western Union, and it would tell you what had happened. You had the crowd noise on a on a record next to you, and you described what happened. And and of course, the brilliant thing was it had that classic sort of as a British observer that American thing of that love of inflating things. So you would just yes. make the play as exciting and as dramatic as possible. Um, I mean, the key to that that anecdote was that he didn't want to break the spell. Yeah. He didn't want to let light in, you know. And and that, I think, is... I, I, I don't think it's unfair to say that that is pretty key to his character. Yeah. I mean, if, if there's a, a kind of a, a heartwarming fantasy, he doesn't want it punctured. And indeed, he goes on to kind of live it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So if you think of um, you know, Boris Johnson doing that, I mean, he would be quite good at it at first, but he would be constantly winking at you and letting you know that it's all... Leering. Yeah, exactly. That it's all yeah. a, that it's all a great joke, and he actually has never seen any of the games because Reagan lives it. I yeah. mean, in it, and and that's why he, it's it's not so much a lie as a kind of exaggerated truth, perhaps one might say. Reagan is a great man for a parable, isn't he? For metaphorical truth, I suppose. Mm. Um, he really believes in that. So anyway, the the baseball is it's great work. It's great training. He does it six days a week. Uh, he'll do 160 games in a given summer, and he's talking, isn't he, to listeners? I mean that's the, that's the other thing. That's he he can talk to people as though it's a one-on-one chat yeah. to a friend. Yeah. At a time when Roosevelt is doing his fireside chats to sell the new deal to people. So radio is the is the medium through which you communicate. And Reagan, he's a local celebrity in Des Moines, so he's the kind of person who is a well enough known radio personality that they'll have his his picture behind the bar in the local bar and people say, "Oh, Dutch Reagan comes here." Um And meanwhile, Muggs Muggs has gone off to France, hasn't she? She has. She's um, she's vanished. Yeah, she's, she's off she's, the scene. She's left. She's off the scene. Readers of the Sporting News voted him the fourth best sports announcer in the United States. So he's oh. it, this is often told as like a two bit story. He's in the middle of nowhere, but he has millions and millions of listeners across the Midwest. So I think um, the Des Moines Dispatch said to millions of sports fans in at least seven or eight Midwestern states, the voice of Dutch Reagan is a daily source of baseball dope. That's like how people talk about you, Tom. History dope. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. History dope. <laughs> that's what we should have called the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we should. <laughs> but, we could yet. But so he could easily have done that. He could easily have done that all his life and, and gone down as a much loved, you know, retired in the 1970s or 80s as a much loved yeah. local. Would have been played by Kevin Costner in a <laughs> yeah. mid 90s film. Maybe he would. Yeah. Dutch <laughs> Reagan, the greatest sportscaster. And, yeah. But that's not enough for him. He goes off with the Cubs in 1936 when they're spring training in California. And then a year later, he, he goes again and he has a friend that he's met through WHO who's called Joy Hodges, who's an actress and singer. And they have dinner and he says, he, he just comes straight out with it and says, I would love to be in Hollywood. You know, he's in his mid twenties. Of course he would. You know, I'd love to. I mean, of course he would. And, and she calls her agent who's got, who's called Bill Michael John and her agent meets him and says, yeah. He could do it. He's tall. He's handsome. He says, I mean, Reagan does have a magnificent voice. He has the most wonderful, sonorous, warm voice. And um, he's also all his, his um, lifeguarding. He's a very good swimmer. Yeah. So he's got the physique. Yeah. I mean, he's a very good looking man. He is. He's got everything. I mean, this agent, Bill Michael John, he basically takes one look at him and he rings Warner Brothers and says, I have another Robert Taylor for you. And they do a screen test um, and they offer him a seven year deal. Warner's office contract, seven years stop, one year option stop, starting $200 a week, stop. Yeah. And Reagan says, famously, bite the hand off before they change their mind. That's sort of a nice little bit of self-deprecation kind of that he's very good mm. at. That's quite, that's a lot of money. I did the conversion. That's 10, in today's money, that's about $10,000 um, a week. It's not bad, is it? So that's not bad at all. He's a big enough fellow in the Midwest that um, WHO throw him a farewell party and the mayor of Des Moines goes, the state treasurer of Iowa yeah, so he's not a nobody at all. No. And then he goes off to Hollywood. And by Hollywood standards, he's not he's never a really big star. 
So he's got a contract. If you had a contract with Warner Brothers, you're one of about 100 people of whom maybe 20 to 30 are the big stars and then the 70 others who are the kind of contract players. So he's always B-movie, basically. Yeah. And it, and he's always the best friend. He is always the best friend. So, so the Gipper, I mean, the Gipper isn't the lead in the film, is it? No, he's not. It's a sad moment when the Gipper dies, but the film is about Knut Rockney. It's about the coach. So yeah, he, he works six days a week, five in the morning till six o'clock in the evening. Uh, but he's lucky because he has a, a, a friend because the big gossip columnist of the day, Luella Parsons, who writes for the Los Angeles Examiner, one of the Hearst stable of papers, she is from Dixon, Illinois. So she takes a real shine to Reagan and boosts him up. So it's the Midwest Mafia. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, the Dixon Mafia. People never yeah. talk about them controlling <laughs> Hollywood, do they? Um, so yeah, he's he's doing all these sort of B-movies. So they're about one hour well, long. I, I mean, unbelievably, he plays Custer. Does he play Custer? He does, uh, opposite Errol Flynn, who's playing Jeb Stewart. And Errol Flynn will then go on to play Custer two years later and they died with their boots on. And Errol Flynn looks much more like Custer. Reagan's the last person I would... He doesn't have a beard. He doesn't have a moustache. He doesn't have the long golden curls. I mean, he looks no. nothing like Custer. And he's, his personality is always the sort of sturdy, reliable, loyal, decent, the soul of the American Midwest. Yeah. That's what he plays. And, and Custer doesn't really fit that description. No, not at all. At all. So that's miscasting. Um, and then he uh, he plays a, a guy who loses his legs, doesn't he? In King's Row. That's his most... Where's... Oh, where's the rest of me? Yeah. So actually, oh. his two most famous moments both involve him lying <laughs> down. Dying. Yeah, <laughs> kind of throat infection, lost limbs. Um, Gorbachev had watched the uh, had watched King's Row. Had he? <laughs> yeah. And so when they met in um, in Geneva, and Reagan was saying to Gorbachev, actually, you know, everyone says that I was just a kind of not a very important actor, but I was quite famous. And Gorbachev said, yes, I saw you when you played someone who didn't have any legs. <laughs> what a bizarre. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant, isn't it? I mean, he was. So the thing with Reagan and, and acting, I mean, it's so many people have poured over this. He was, he was never a kind of A-list big name. He was always a supporting actor. People would all sort of say, especially in the 80s when people were, his critics would say he was a terrible actor, a B-movie actor. I mean, he wasn't terrible. Otherwise, he wouldn't have... Wouldn't have got the contract. He wouldn't have got the contract. But and also, he, he raises his profile in two ways, doesn't he? So he, the first is, um, and this is where the gossip column comes in, that he, he marries Jane Wyman. Yeah. The time they start going out together, their careers are, are about on a par. But in due course, she, I mean, she'll win an Oscar. She'll become... Well, she's nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. I think she wins an Oscar in due course after the war. Oh, you're absolutely right. You're right. And I stand. She doesn't just get yeah. an Oscar. She's got two Golden Globes and two Remis. Yeah. So she's, she ends up a massive star. And I think that becomes part of the problem because, of course, spoiler alert, that Reagan and, and Jane Wyman end up divorcing. And it's Jane Wyman who wants to do it. And I think that the, the kind of disequilibrium between the, the yeah. brabbler of their respective careers is part of that. But Jane Wyman has a very kind of Marilyn Monroe-esque confusion of names, kind of broken upbringing. And she and Reagan, you know, that's a, that's a kind of great partnership because the gossip columnists can write about it and all that kind of thing. But they're very ill-suited though, aren't they, Tom? Don't incredibly ill-suited. I'm so bored with him, I'll either kill him or kill myself, she says at one point. And she's always complaining about his, um, his verbal diarrhea. She just says, what did she say to him at one point when they, when they um, break up? It's actually, uh, I'm just going to try and find the... <laughs> I came here hoping you changed, but you haven't. You're still the same loudmouth you were before. Because, because by this point, Reagan has discovered Reader's Digest. Yeah. And he just motors his way through it and he will just repeat it. And so he's endlessly going on to Jane Wyman about dams in Africa and <laughs> ocelots and all kinds, all kinds of Is stuff. Is he talking about just... ocelots? I don't, surely not. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the kind of thing you get in Reader's Digest. He's full of facts. Everybody always says, and they say this right through to 1980, <laughs> January 1989 when he leaves the White House, they say the trouble with Reagan is if you write something down and hand it to him, he will believe it. I mean, all his aides say it drives them yes. mad that yes. he reads stuff in magazines. and is So there's one famous example where he says that trees cause more pollution than yes. people do. <laughs> Yes. And he's read it somewhere in, some, <laughs> in the Reader's Digest. Yeah. And he cannot be persuaded that it's not true. But the thing that's interesting about Jane Wyman is that she was always a Republican. Yeah. Right. So, so Reagan was the liberal and she was the conservative. Yeah. And so actually, you know, long after they've divorced, she votes for him uh, in both elections. And Dominic, here's a link. 
um, to the Cathars episode. Perhaps unexpected. Oh, this is unexpected. So when she died, she was buried in the uh, the white robes of a Dominican nun. So she was a Dominican. Buried at Rennes Le Chateau. <laughs> no, she wasn't. <laughs> that would be a, no. <laughs> well, who knows? Who knows what truth? Maybe she was a a grand mistress of the Priory of Zion. <laughs> Possibly. But she's completely wrong. She's very fiery. She's yeah. um she's sort of quite a turbulent character. Yes, yeah, so she's typecast as a kind of you know, she's in screwball comedies. She's a kind of wisecracking dame, that kind of stuff. She's a floozy. She's a floozy is what she is. And and she wants to get out of that and play more complicated, more yeah. s- subtle characterization and she succeeds in doing that. Reagan never does that. And I think part of it is that maybe he's a more limited actor, but I think also it's because actually he can't play more complex characters because he's not a particularly complicated character. Do you think? Yeah. It was that harsh. I don't think that. No, I think that's right. I think uh, lots of people say about him, he only basically plays himself. Hal Wallace of, runs the Warner slate. So he's in charge of managing the, the sort of the Warner team. He says he's not an actor of depth or intensity. Yeah. And lots of people basically say, Ronald Reagan will play the best friend. But anything more demanding, anything than more that. S- more subtle. Yeah. So actually, in King's Row, where he loses his legs, he had hoped that would be the springboard to playing more, you know, more uh, demanding parts. But that's 1941. The war intervenes, and there's a bit of a hiatus in his career because he goes off to join the Air Corps. That's when he does a lot of his Reader's Digest reading, because he's he's sort of working as a backroom boy. He's too old really to fight. He has uh, a dependence by that point. So Jane and they've started a family. So Maureen, and then they end up adopting Michael. But but again, the weird thing. So so there's this brilliant comment by um, Stephen Vaughan on Reagan um, that no 20th century president, with the exception of Dwight D. Eisenhower, had been seen in uniform by more people. Because oh, he's appearing in all these propaganda films. Because he's appearing in propaganda films. Yeah. So he's he's kind of playing a simulacrum of an American officer in the war. Yes, he is. And he does it so brilliantly that it comes to seem indistinguishable from. From the reality. Well, I mean, it's Reagan who institutes, for example, saluting uh, when he's president, always saluting um, the Marine Guards and all these kinds of things. And he's brilliant at it. And he looks very military, but he's always quite conscious, I think, that he didn't see action um, in the Second World War, that actually he spent it behind a desk through no fault of his own. Even, I mean, among other things, his short sightedness means that he would probably have been. Um, found it very hard to get a sort of front line. Well, I think, I mean, I think when we come to the. Um the account of his uh, the assassination attempt on him, it will be very clear that Reagan was, you know, was certainly not a coward. No, 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 um, not at all. I mean, he was yeah. a, a very brave man. Um, but again, it's this bleeding of reality into fantasy and yeah. back again and role playing, so that it kind of becomes indistinguishable. But one thing, the so, so I talked about the uh, the the two things that um, raise Reagan's profile, despite the fact that his acting career isn't entirely stellar. So one is his his marriage to Jane Wyman. The other is that he starts to get into Hollywood politics, doesn't he? And yeah. specifically union politics. Yeah. And again, so Reagan is the only, I think, the only US president to have been a union leader. I think that's absolutely right. Yes. Um, he comes out of the war and the demand for his kind of parts is drying up, actually. Because in the late 1940s, people want more conflicted, grittier films. And he's just not right for those. You know, he's from the late 30s, melodramas. He doesn't fit. And he throws himself into the Screen Actors Guild. He's always been, I mean, this is, again, this is something that reflects his deepest impulses. Going back to his his mother in, you know, when he's growing up in the Disciples of Christ, you always join in, you know, you're the person. So he'd always been the union rep, the union monitor from about 1938 onwards on most of the films he had done. You know, he was a union man. And does it well and is very popular. Yeah, he's very popular. But union... Hollywood union politics is is very, very conflicted in the late 1940s. So there are a whole series of strikes. The studio bosses are swinging to the right. So people like Walt Disney, for example, are really, really banging the drum of anti-communism. And in part because they're very cross about the strikes and they, they basically want to present the strikes as, as communist inspired. There is a key moment uh, from 1946. It's it's not the actors themselves. It is the people who build the sets and you know do all the, the sort painters. Of, and, yeah, do yeah. all the hard graft. So yeah. they'd been represented by something called the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees. But there's a breakaway union called the Conference of Studio Unions. Um, that the sort of the left, the the more left leaning actors are keen to back. Uh, this dispute gets really quite vicious. 
Um, so the September 1946, more than a thousand of the sort of um, painters and decorators and builders and things are fired. And the question is, who are the actors going to back? The studio bosses or the kind of the craftsmen? And Reagan delivers a, a big set piece speech in a 6,000 seater stadium to all you know, the Hollywood actors, basically, in October 1946, in which he persuades them that the strike is being led by communists and they shouldn't, they shouldn't get involved. He gets um, police protection after that, doesn't he? Does. he? Because there's a threat that acid will be thrown in his face. Exactly. It's very, it's very sort of conflicted, uh, sort of time of dirty politics. The House Committee on Un-American Activities are looking into Hollywood, putting pressure on Hollywood, saying, you know, you've made far too many pro-Soviet films in World War II. There are far too many communist writers. There's this sort of suspicion of a communist cell within Hollywood and so on and so forth. And Reagan becomes the president of the Screen Actors Guild in March 1947, at the point at which all this is really, really hotting up. And he has no doubt whatsoever about his role. His role as he sees it is to stand up for the American way, uh, to cooperate with HUAC, cooperate with the FBI. But at the, I mean, so so he's he's becoming, I mean, very openly anti-communist. But at the same time, he is very effective at representing the interests of his fellow actors against the studio bosses. Right? I mean, he's to that extent, he's still very recognisably the the disciple of FDR, the admirer. You know, his his father's son. Yeah, he's still de- he's still voting Democrat. So he votes. He's still voting. He's voted for FDR. He's um, I guess must vote for Truman in 1948. He's not confrontational with the studio bosses, so he would always cut deals with them. But he's popular with yeah with the other actors w- with the other actors who vo- who vote because they see him as effective. Yeah, they definitely. You're absolutely right. They definitely don't regard him as the studio boss's puppet. I think there are definitely questions later on about whether he's a little bit too close to his own agency, um, MCA. It's a really powerful Hollywood agency. But you're absolutely right. He would not have been propelled into that position as the head of the Screen Actors Guild had he not been regarded as a guy who will fight for a better deal yeah. for the actors. The, the, the question mark that hangs over him is, you know, he goes and testifies to Hueck and, and so on and so forth in um, late 1947. What he does is it's classic Reagan. He's brilliant at pleasing everybody, giving everybody so he goes in front of the committee and he says, well, there are some communists in Hollywood, but he doesn't name any names. He says there are communists, um, but we've got them under control. You know, we'll root them out because he's sort of trying to protect. He's simultaneously giving the committee what it wants while also protecting the Screen Actors Guild and protecting the sort of the great majority of actors. So this is the point at which you have the blacklist of the Hollywood 10, those, those people who won't um, cooperate with the inquiry, they are put on a blacklist and they can only work under sort of false names and stuff. Reagan d- has no interest in standing up for them, which some people do. He's absolutely not going to go out on a limb to do that. But he's sort of charted, it's not quite a middle course because his anti-communism is becoming increasingly sort of marked. But it's not, I think it would be unfair to say he's just a sort of rabid red baiter or something, as later right. critics sometimes did. But over the course of the 50s, he is definitely drifting to the right. Yeah. So, so anti-communism is, is combined with a resentment of the tax burden, as he sees it. Yes. Because isn't there something that he'd, something to do with he'd expected a tax amnesty after the war, which he didn't get? That's right. He, it, the people had had them in World War I if they, veterans had been able to de- defray their taxes to the end of the war. Either he's read it in the Reader's Digest or he's got a very bad accountant who says they'll probably do the same again. So he doesn't pay his taxes. And then basically that forces him into a, the highest possible tax bracket at the end of World War II. And he's outraged. He's also, Jane Wyman has asked him for a divorce. So he's paying alimony to her because she gets the kids. And his career is starting to, yeah, to go down. Exactly. Exactly. His career is starting to go down. Plus, he's sort of hanging around with a lot of actors who are very right wing. So Robert Taylor, Robert Montgomery, George Murphy, they're kind of actors of a certain age. They're maybe a couple of years older than Reagan. They, they kind of look like Reagan. They sort of sit around. Craggy. Having, yeah. Yeah. Sort of a lot of brill cream. Um, yeah. <laughs> they sit around <laughs> drinking scotch and sort of moaning about paying too much tax and you know, their swimming pool. And- do, do you think in Reagan's case... You know, as his career seems to be going down, that he's is his for the first time is his um, politics being bred of resentment. Do you think? 
he can never understand why his his film career doesn't work out. I think he always thinks he was a better actor and he never really got a... That's why he's very prickly later on when people mock his acting. He doesn't mind doing it himself, but he doesn't like other people doing it. And yeah, I think it's because... I, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're like that about, you know, cricket, history. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, no, I... I Certain fellow feeling. Yeah. No, no, I think I think you're right. I think there, there's a sense in which life at this point is the first point in his in his life where he's not getting everything. You know, ambition and hard work are not taking him to the places yeah. that he thought yeah. they would. I, I, and just to reiterate, I mean, they have taken him a very long way. Oh, yeah. He's from a very poverty-stricken background, and he it, he kind of has been living the American dream, but the American dream now is slightly curdling. Yes. And so... His career, his film career is coming to an end. And so therefore the question is, what is he going to do? Well, when we come back next time, we'll talk about the one person who he hasn't yet met, who definitely is going to confirm his move to the right, who is not from a poverty stricken background by any means. And that is, of course, Nancy, Nancy Davis, um, who becomes his great sort of soulmate and his partner. But just before we bow out, Tom, I mean, the lowest point in Reagan's life, um, he goes to London. In early 1940. Yes, and it's the first it's the first foreign country he's ever been to, isn't it? And he thinks it's terrible. It confirms all his darker suspicions of socialism. He's shocked by the socialism of uh, Clement Attlee's Britain. Do you know what he described London as? A dismal wilderness, Tom. Mm, That's how well, I feel about London. So, well, you know, he had some, had some steaks flown over to the Savoy because he thought the British food was so bad. And I read... But that, that, to be fair to us, though, that's because we'd been yeah. bombed. And uh, when he says to Richard Todd, his co-star at one point, what is rationing? He kind of can't get his head around it. He has these steaks flown over, but the fridges in the Savoy apparently didn't work properly. So the, the steaks <laughs> all went bad. Anyway, that's, um, that confirms all his darkest fears about uh, European-style socialism and social... It's democracy. lucky his uh, great-great-grandparents didn't stay in Peckham then, isn't it? Yeah. Well, gosh, yes. A bullet dodged. That is a bullet dodged. Right. We will come back and we will be talking a bit more about Nancy. We will talk about Reagan's move to work for General Electric, his involvement with the Barry Goldwater campaign in 1964, becoming governor of California, and then his rise to the presidency. And then after that, we will get on to the presidency, to Gorbachev, to Iran-Contra, all these things. So we're looking at three episodes, aren't oh, we? Oh, definitely, Tom. Um, yeah. At least. So if you want to listen to them right now. The great news is that actually you can. It's a great offer. Uh, you should be selling this in your Ronald Reagan voice. <laughs> um, do you want to sell it? What, where can they listen to them, Tom? On, on which platform? My fellow Americans, they can listen to it on every platform. Uh, it's a great offer. So what you want to do is you want to uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or restishistorypod.com. Apple Podcasts or restishistorypod.com. And if you don't do that, you'll just have to wait along with the European-style socialists. Yeah. <laughs> That's the Democrat option. <laughs> yeah. You'll just have if you're to a wait. bunch of loser commies, <laughs> you'll just have to Don't wait. pay us money. <laughs> I see myself very much as the, um, <laughs> who am I in this analogy? Um, who are you? You're, well, you're uh, Nancy. I'm not Nancy. <laughs> I was just about to say I'm not Nancy. I'm, I'm somebody like Lemuel Boulware. Of general electric. So so you definitely want to go and sign up because honestly, the list of characters with ludicrous and improbable names coming up is not to be missed. So basically, pile in. Pile in. So next time, the life and career of Lemuel Bullware on the rest (laughs) of history and also a bit of Ronald Reagan. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.